This is Window on the East from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE IntelliNews. Things are getting scary in Ukraine as both East and West pour arms and materiel into Ukraine and its bordering regions. Is there going to be a war? And how is Russian business coping with this insecurity? I talked to Mark Galliotti, the CEO of Mayak Intelligence and a visiting professor at UCL in London, as well as Tom Blackwell, the founder and CEO of EM Communications, Russia's biggest PR agency. Today I'm joined... Today I'm being joined by Mark Galliotti, the, um, the founder and head of Mayak Intelligence and uh, a half a dozen professor posts. I don't even, you can, what, what are they, Mark? Hardly worth, um, no, never mind, hardly worth mentioning. You can mention University College London School of Slavonic and East European Studies. Give them right. the props. Right. And also by Tom Blackwell from Moscow. Um, Tom is an um, old friend of ours, um, the founder and CEO of uh, EM Communications, probably Russia's leading PR company. Um, he deals with uh, all of the Russian blue chips, particularly those who've been IPOing recently. What was it? You did 10 of the last 12 IPOs in the last year. Is that right? All but one. All but one. All but one. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Tom's going to give us a, a view from the ground of what um, corporate Russia sees uh, this, this whole dispute. Um, we're planning to about 45 minutes, maybe up to an hour. Um, three questions on the agenda. We're going to kick off with why the coverage, the media coverage is so varied. Um, there's a whole bunch of different takes on this and, um, it's very confused. Everyone seems to have dropped into camps and sending different me- messages. Um, and then we're going to have, um, a chat about how, um, the business Russia sees this whole thing. Um, because that's an aspect of the story that hasn't really been covered. Um, and of course, they're going to be affected. Um, and one would thought that their view on this whole showdown with the West is different to what the, that Kremlin. And then finally, looking forward, um, that Putin just arrived in China for the Beijing Olympics and the Chinese, um, could be brought into this because this whole thing started because Biden wanted to play down the Russia problem so that he could focus on China. And it seems that Putin's playing an obvious card here is like dragging China in and not unwillingly, because my view of this is China is watching this whole thing and it must be thinking we're next. This sort of stuff is going to happen to us next. But let's start with the first question. Um, and specifically uh, to both of you, your Tom is in, in, in PR and, and media and watches this closely. And of course, We've all been watching the news very closely, uh, Mark, but there seems to be two fundamental different takes on what's going on. One is that Russia is just about to invade Ukraine uh, imminently and presumably annex it. And the other is that this is all about NATO. This is exactly what it says on the can, that Putin wants to stop NATO expansion and that he's using um, what the IR people call a compellent strategy, where he's trying to force another country to do something. And that only works if you have a credible threat of violence, of war behind it. I don't know, Mark, I mean, what's your take? I mean, we agree, basically, we talked before that invasion is unlikely, but we can't rule it out entirely, can we? 
No, I mean, I think, look, there's a variety of problems here, and I'm going to be incredibly tediously academic by saying that a lot of it depends on what you mean by certain terms. I mean, I think this is one of the key problems. Invasion carries with it this mass grandiose notion of exactly an attempt to sort of annex all of Ukraine east of the Dnieper or, you know, or indeed the whole country. And we have these exciting maps doing the rounds with all these sort of dynamic arrows about this sort of, you know, a thrust here and a parachute drop there. All very exciting war porny stuff. The problem is, you know, what we see is, a, I mean, a very serious military buildup. There's no way of getting around that. And although much of what is there is materiel rather than actually the men to go in them, that would be a very quick thing to actually just simply bring them. So this is actually a, a force that could that could genuinely make a move against Ukraine. And that could be anything from, you know, a, a, an all-out conflict to just simply delivering some devastating strikes just to more or less show to the Ukrainians, look, we can do this anytime you want, and NATO, fine, they'll, they'll send you some anti-tank missiles, but they're not ultimately going to protect you. So, you know, th there is a whole menu of options at Putin's disposal. I think the, the, the issue really is that this rather sterile argument has become polarized between the military wonks who look at the capabilities and assume that capability proves intent. There's no way you build up this kind of a force unless you plan to use it. And those who tend to be more on the kind of political an analysis side who say it doesn't really seem to make sense to actually use this force. And I think the, the answer is actually to also realize that it's not about Ukraine or NATO. I mean, it's about both. It's about the fact that what makes the Ukrainian issue so salient for Putin and co is the NATO factor. It's uh, as far as they're concerned, this is going to be airstrip one. This is even if it's not in NATO, it can be used as a base for missiles, other forms of security architecture. And because fundamentally, they do not trust the West. They do not trust NATO. I mean, when when NATO replies in its letter with sort of point number one being, oh, well, NATO is a purely defensive alliance. The thing is, as far as the Russians are concerned, they say, well, yeah, we, we've seen Kosovo, we've seen Iraq, we've seen Afghanistan, we've seen Libya. For a defensive alliance, NATO seems to do a lot of bombing. Um, and, and therefore, you know, in, in that respect, this is a chance to try and ensure that they address this, this vital, as far as they're concerned, security issue, which has been made all the more current by what's happening in, in Ukraine. So I think this is it. It, it, it's a whole variety of things that, that come together. And I think military force is on the table as an option, but the, the Russians must be aware of the devastating costs it could have. So it's, that, it's plan that, B that, or plan is, C. Isn't that the key question? I mean, the, if Russia does invade Ukraine, what does it get? I mean, how, how does that improve it? I mean, yes, you stop Ukraine joining NATO because it now becomes a region of Russia again with enormous costs in political terms, sanctions, human life, destruction. Um, we just did a piece about the grain markets. The East uh, Ukraine is where all the grain is. This would also destroy Ukraine's agricultural output for this year and have a huge shock, food shock to the rest of the world. This would ripple around the whole world. And yes, you then, but is it that simple that you take Ukraine and then it can't join NATO because it's not an independent country anymore? You can't take Ukraine. I mean, I think this is the issue. Look, what the Russians have got is a force that could launch a very successful military attack on Ukraine in the sense of essentially defeating the Ukrainian army on the battlefield. 
despite the, the genuine moves that have been made to reform the Ukrainian military, if only the rest of the country had reformed at the same pace. Um, but nonetheless, you know, because of their massive overmatch in terms of long-range fire, air power, and so forth, the Russians could beat the Ukrainian army. Yeah. But that's a world away from taking cities and then holding territory. I mean, we've seen that, that the Russian approach to urban warfare, and certainly so we've seen so far, if you look at Grozny, if you look at Aleppo, is to bomb it flat first and then plant a flag on it. I don't think we can expect that. I mean, A, because then what you get, you just get the implacable hostility of every Ukrainian. It will play terribly in the West and it will play terribly at home, quite frankly. You can't sort of start by saying Ukrainians are our cousins and we have to save them. And in order to save them, we had to bomb the snot out of them. So I think although they, they can launch military attacks, I'm not sure about their capacity to take cities and above all to hold them. That is the key thing. Trying to pacify and hold an area would involve a massively greater force. And just saying, oh, well, we've seen, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 Roskvardia currently on the move in, into Belarus. That's not the kind of force you need that. So I think, again, you know, the, the, the issue is really that we're talking about a whole variety of military options and those maximalist ones, I really cannot see how no, they are even conceived. I agree. I am. Um, if, if you take the, the compellence argument that this is the threat of force, and actually that is sufficient, then couldn't you say that actually Putin's already had a big win? In so much as that um, in 2008, Medvedev went to Europe with a security, a new security deal drawn out. It's actually still on the Min uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs website, uh, which was very detailed. And it just got dismissed out of hand. And this time round, because he significantly scaled up and rattled his saber very loudly, that he's got the talks that he wanted, the ones that didn't happen in 2008. And in that sense, he's already achieved his first goal, which is to get everyone to sit down. And if you look at the American letter, bits of which was leaked in El Pais, that they're actually willing to talk about five of the eight things on the agenda. It's just this one nature of thing. So in that sense, it's working. The compelling strategy is working. They have compelled the West into these talks. It's just whether you can close those talks you know, to the way Putin wants to. I think up to a point, but we shouldn't assume that all the points are of equal weight. I mean, again, I think from the Russians' point of view, yes, this is, this is definitely progress. And certainly that first week of negotiations, actually, it looked as if they weren't going to get anywhere. And I think that's one of the reasons why we saw the massive cyber attacks against Ukraine and mm. a very, very visual shifting of forces from the Russian Far East to the West, just simply as a point of saying, look, serious, this, we are serious about this to treat us appropriately. And yes, I think, fortunately, the United States, rather than NATO, rose to that particular challenge and, and, and responded. But I'm, I, I don't know, I mean, look, the capacity of the Kremlin to spin any compromise as a glorious triumph against the warmongers of NATO should not be understated. However, all of this stuff about, uh, you know, inspection of, you know, uh, Tomahawk cruise missile sort of bases and such like, I think that really just scratches around the edge. They're fine, they're useful technical sort of moves, but if at the same time the notion of NATO still being in Ukraine and then Ukraine becoming in NATO, if that is still a viable option, then in a way, I don't think the rest really matters, I think, to Putin and Co. Can we um, talk briefly about, um, talk about spin? I mean, uh, we took the line pretty early on that the problem with uh, the invasion talk is that it was all coming from U.S. intelligence sources 
uh, with no evidence and was being fed to the U.S. press, specifically, I think it was Washington Post that started it off. And there's a, a certain amount of hype going on here because, again, we did reporting from the ground and the Ukrainians themselves and Zelensky, you know, just last week said, nothing's changed. The, so, and just watching the news flow from the last 24, 48 hours, um, there was that presser in White House briefing where the where the journalist was grilling the spokesman and saying that you've offered us no evidence whatsoever that um, this is all just you telling us this is going on. Um, and then CNN just sent a report to, I think it was uh, uh, right on the Ukrainian border. She was in some market and everybody was dismissing it. And they did a hard story saying, like, we're calling bullshit on this. It's not going to happen. So that hype, the f- fatigue with it seems to be running out because I think what's today is day 97 of no invasion in Ukraine, counting from the first World Pope story. But it does seem there's a certain element of spin being put on this by the White House. Um, at the same time, Boris Jordan, uh, Johnson has been accused of playing this up because it saves his bacon in the face of party gates. Um, and the whole domestic politic, political agenda of the Russia, you know, enemy at the gates has been very useful in the, in the States. And so it complicates all the reporting because there seems to be agendas here um it's not very balanced but to what extent do we have to take all of the reporting we're seeing particularly that coming out of the states with a pinch of salt well obviously we should take all reporting full stop apart from in bne and telling news with a pinch <laughs> of salt um but i think that yes look, that, that there, is, there is a problem here i mean you know clearly part of the reason why kiev wants to downplay it is because they, they want to avoid panic in terms of their population and of course for the economic yeah. impact and also, there does seem to be a certain, frankly, bloody-mindedness, a sense that they feel that they're being lent on by the Americans to get with the program, and they feel, well, actually, that's that's not really what it's about. You know, here we are trying to fight against what we regard as a foreign infringement of our sovereignty, and we're now being put in a position where the Americans are getting annoyed because we're not basically doing what, what they tell us instead. So I think, you know, there's, there's emotional as well as practical issues there. Likewise, in the States, I think one, one of the issues is, I mean, they, there clearly is a genuine belief within government circles that actually a Russian military um, escalation is distinctly probable, if not absolutely certain. I mean, and it's amazing the, the certainty with which both government and some government adjacent analysts are putting this out. And at first, yes, it was going to be earlier. And then, oh, no, no, it's, you know, this. It's too much mud and it's not frozen enough because, after all, as we know, the the Russian military can only operate in the most ideal conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, And then now it's, oh, well, no, not during the Beijing Olympics. But yes, I think there there will come a point where people will start thinking, well, no wolf has appeared, however often you've cried it out. And this might be part of the Russian calculation. I mean, again, you know, it might well be that they're thinking, well, we're going to put on a really good bluff. We learned the lessons because back in the the escalation that took place in the spring of last year, one of the reasons why people were saying, yes, lots of troops being moved, but actually this is not really going to lead to to war because there isn't all the logistical backup. There's not the Mm. field hospitals and the fuel and the ammunition and so forth. Well, I think the Russians, we can assume that they're smart enough to think, well, okay, if that's why they called our bluff last time, we're going to make sure that it's a really convincing bluff this time by moving all that stuff up. So, you know, we we still don't know. But whatever reason, you know, the the US government seems to genuinely believe this. And I'm not 
excluding that there are also political dynamics at work. But I think mm. they've also made a clear st strategic decision that they will talk it up because they feel that actually is in itself a deterrent force. I mean, again, let's take this business of the recent press conference announcing that the Russians were planning a false flag attack and it was a, so there's a sort of a whole film being done with, with victims and everything mm. else. And this is precisely where the journalists were saying, okay, this is evidence from the spokesman were saying, well, we're, we're declassifying that, which is just simply a way of saying, we're telling you about it. The thing is that this was not actually a press event. Real, although it was being announced, it was actually, it was a piece of information operation being directed towards Moscow and also trying to kind of put that out there so that if it, this, this then happens, people will say, hang on, wasn't that the thing that the State Department told mm -hmm. us about a month ago? Um, so I think, you know, th there is a degree to which Kiev is underplaying it for political reasons. And I think that uh, DC is overplaying it also for political reasons. Plus, of course, it's, a, it's another way of basically beating the recalcitrant Europeans who you think are not getting not serious enough over the head. I must say, I, I remain skeptical because, I mean, as far as I can see, the only fact we have is there's some, whatever it is, 9,227, whatever the number is, new troops in Western and Southern military districts in the bases. And that's indisputable. Um, the flag, false flag, I, I understand the argument. It's like we're calling it out, so now they can't do that. But no evidence, as the journalist was saying, has been presented. Yeah, but I think, you know, in fairness, uh, and uh, I mean... <laughs> Much as I resent now being <laughs> becoming the little sort of spokesman of the security industrial complex, but no, I mean, in, in fairness, if we assume that they may have deep, spooky stuff that they cannot possibly reveal any of the other detail for, for fear of compromising sources and methods, that's entirely normal. But again, I think the problem is that instead of saying, look, we cannot disclose our, our, our sources. So, you know, mm. believe us or not believe us, but this is what we're telling you that we have found. Instead, they are just still simply presenting it as just simply if, if they announce it, it must be true and getting annoyed when, when journalists push back against it. I think, you know, again, mm. it, it, the, the problem is that they're not just simply being sufficiently self-aware to realise that actually just because they announce it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And in part, it's because... Uh, certain elements of the American media over recent years have essentially become stenographers of the intelligence community. Yeah. But they well, are too funny. willing to just simply produce articles and just simply say an intelligence source told us as if... Well, and there's the whole w, WMD thing uh, where they seriously damage their reputation. Tom, what about you? I mean, you're in Moscow. <clears throat> What's the mood there? Because from what I'm hearing... And of course, here in the English language speaking world, we, we get constant reports and you know, re re revelations of false flag operations and intel. But from what I understand, um, in Russia, there's complete calm that people are not expecting a war, that it's not even being played up on the media. Is, is that the case? Yeah, I mean, I would, so I mean, I think that's certainly the case, but I would sort of go back, I, I remember back to December. Um, and so, it was, you know, I, I'd been in Moscow pretty much the whole time when this had, had sort of started to evolve the topic. And I remember to mid-December was flew to London. It was my first time in the UK since this had started. And I was at a dinner uh, with about 10 people and a few journalists, a couple of fund managers, a couple of analysts, and was was sort of stunned. I mean, I sort of put in with, with sort of complete calm or sort of feeling that this is not going to escalate in, in, into anything. And so there, it wasn't a topic on people's minds. 
And I flew in and then by the end of this dinner, everybody around the table, except me, was convinced that the war was going to happen before Christmas. And, mm. and, it, and there was almost no doubts in their minds that, it, that this was going to be the case. And, I, and I, just, it just, I just couldn't help feel this disconnect between what was being said there versus what seemed to sort of feel like the case, you know, sort of suddenly back in Russia. And so I think that's, you know, and, and that disconnect has just actually grown and grown. I mean, I think now, you know, now my sort of, you know, my Russia alert, media alerts are going crazy now. Sort of like every 10 minutes, there's a new headline of, you know, war is imminent. It's happening now. We're going to fight back with the worst sanctions ever. And this, so this, this, this kind of fever pitch that you reach sort of in, in, in a lot of Western media. And normally I'm quite sort of conscious about not using this phrase Western media because it's not nearly as much as I think as sometimes the Russians think and all of that. But this time it's been quite it's quite consistent I, in russia it's very quiet um you know so number one i don't think that they're they're still to this day i think people are somewhat bemused and and sort of surprised by what they continue to read and what and what they hear from outside of russia um and and as you said i certainly it doesn't feel like the russian media are are reporting it on it as if there were to be a war because i think that you know as as, as i think mark as you said a war would be extremely unpopular it would be a very big sell to the people here to actually go in and have a real, real escalation with real, you know, sort of massive yeah, consequences. It doesn't feel like that. And, and, you know, normally you can tell when the Russian media machine is preparing people for an eventuality. You can feel it. It's everywhere. And it's not there as far as I can see. Isn't that one of the, I mean, that's been floated as one of the arguments that there is going to be no invasion because you'd expect the propaganda uh, the Russian media machine to to get everyone ready for that and capitalize it, and there seems to be not a dicky bit uh, in that direction. Doesn't that argue against uh, an invasion or a real military operation? Does, doesn't the population need to be prepared for what would be a very unpopular war? I mean, I think so. Um, again, I think the the problem is as ever. And look, I mean, let me just disaggregate, shall we say, the analytic from from the political. If you essentially already start from the point of view that there will be a war because you've got some spooky information or just simply because you think Putin is an ethno-fascist or, or whatever other ju justification, then you can always find both some toxic voices, particularly on you know evening Russian TV, the sort of geopolitical shock jock type people who will say ridiculous things. And you can say, aha, that shows it. Precisely while, as Tom was saying, ignoring the fact that in, in the vast majority of the mainstream media, there isn't anything of that sort. Or you even frame it as a, well, yes, but the, because they're planning on making it a sort of a, framing it as a defensive action that's triggered by Ukrainian or NATO activity. Surprise is a key element of that. So this is unfortunately why people can, can find whatever they want to find in, in the facts. Mm -hmm. but yes, I, I mean, I, I personally agree. I mean, I think and it's, it's long and short term. It's not just that actually that there's no constituency for a war in Ukraine, which we know from Levada surveys and everything else. But also the fact is that whatever happens, I mean, any military escalation would lead to both direct sanctions and also a whole variety of knock-on costs, even you know, ranging from boys coming home in zinc boxes to economic costs. And none of those are gonna be popular. I haven't come across any Russians who are saying, our problem is we just have a little bit too much cash. Wouldn't it be nice if we could find some way of, of, of cutting down on, on that excessive income? No, I mean, Russians are definitely feeling the pinch. There's clearly a current push from the government 
to you know try and at least be able to appear to be um, making good on some of its big project project based promises to the Russian people before 2024 and the elections then you know an election sorry an, an invasion you know any, any substantial military intervention there's no way of getting around it would actually have a dramatic impact on finances and politics for years to come yeah so I'm um, coming back I mean looking at the the market reaction the market peaked in in October and then you know the war talk began and it drifted down slowly but it wasn't until the end of that Geneva week um, that suddenly it tanked it sold off really hard you know where the international investors suddenly decided that actually this is starting to look pretty scary and now they've been selling out of said and the market's found a floor it went from 1900 to 14 so People, I mean, BCS, uh, one of the investment banks, came out with a note today saying the market is a screaming buy, but nobody's going to buy it until this is buy, this is finished. You were just talking to Dost, I think, um, because the Russian corporates themselves have said absolutely nothing about this. But the impression is, you know, they've spent the last three decades building up their business. They've been going gangbusters. Uh, many of the you know, non-state-owned companies. Um, they must be extremely annoyed. I mean, we just had an IPO boom, no IPOs for whatever it was, five or six years. And then in the space of 12 months, there was a dozen of them all like, you know, doubling what they were getting, billion dollars each. Uh, what's, what's the mood there amongst the corporates? Are they just like, oh God, here we go again? Well, I think there may be an element of them. Certainly, I think anyone you know who's looking at the stock markets, publicly traded companies, or companies that were looking to go public, certainly it's it's. I would say it's jolly unhelpful. Uh, the, the the sort of what's what's happening in the world and, and and the calculations that people are making. And I think that you know, so to your point about how the stock market sort of finally sort of started to dive after after Geneva, I do think that was the point where it seemingly the consensus sort of shifted among the you know the international fund managers and sort of main equity holders. I think that there was a calculation that law suddenly started to look more realistic. Um, I think that selling the you know, OFZs, you know, is is probably a, a a reasonably sort of an obvious thing to do if you think that the war is is likely to happen because that would be one of the most obvious sanctions that would come into place and you don't want to be left holding them in, in, in that situation. But I think to the point about how, you know, business, you're absolutely right, has been completely silenced. But I think that there are probably two reasons for that, why you just don't see companies coming out and talking about this. One, I think, picks up a little bit on what, what we were talking about earlier. I think Still to this day, I don't think business believes that this is going to happen. Uh, and this is, you know, local business, in-country business, whether it's international companies or, or Russian corporates. Um, you know, I mean, as I was talking to one investment banker yesterday who sort of made the comment, this war continues to be the, the only war I've seen that exists entirely in the media and solely in the media. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe that's a bit of an oversimplification, but there is an element to that in terms of how people are thinking. So, number one, if you don't think it's going to happen, it's maybe you have less sort of inclination to suddenly get very exercised and very vocal about it. But I think the second reason, and probably the much bigger reason, quite frankly, is that it's a pretty much all downside if you weigh in. It's not a public debate. If you're a company, you're a big Russian company or an international company here, this is not a debate that you really want to be weighing in on because you can't start to talk about the war without then kind of being drawn into a discussion of sanctions and then being drawn into a discussion of who's right. Yeah, you know, you know, you have to then make some comment one way or another. And so basically, if you if if you make any comments about it, you're ve- and you veer towards one side or the other, you're going to kind of piss off at least fifty percent of your sort of stakeholders. 
nuance. And if you make mm-hmm. an even if you make a nuanced comment that happens to be in the middle, you'll probably piss off everyone uh, for not being mm-hmm. extreme enough on one side or the other. And so I think that they, you know, I think that companies have reached a correct calculation that it's all downside. How influential are they? In so much as <clears throat> you go through the the bill, the, the most recent one, sanctions from hell. That they've named various um, state-owned entities, um, and then there's a general sort of implication in most of the coverage that Russia's economy is basically owned by the state, and that they're going to use sanctions to target and, and hit state-owned companies. But as I said, I mean, particularly in the last 20 years, the boom of the noughties, um, there's now this large private sector vibrant. And in the West, um, you know, someone like the White House, they pay a lot of attention to the economies, big companies. They have political influence you know, as they fund them or whatever the reasons are. But I, I have the impression that the private sector, all these world-class large companies, that many of who have just IPOs, um, they have no influence at all. The Kremlin, Putin's shown himself willing to sacrifice Russia's prosperity for the sake of his geopolitical ambition. Would you say that's a fair case? I mean, they don't have that. I mean, they talk to the Kremlin, but they don't have any influence. Well, I think you need to be clear about influence over what. But if we're being, if specifically talking about influence over foreign policy decision making and specifically this kind of decision making, then yeah, I would say that they don't have. I don't think they have any influence at all. And 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 moreover, I think it would take a pretty brave private company to go to the president and say. Could you dial this back, please? Because it's not helpful for the share price, or it's not helpful for our, you know, for our profits at the end of the year. I mean, I don't think anyone would 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 fancy having that conversation. It certainly wouldn't end well for them. Um, but you know, I think that that you know, but that's a, sort of the private companies. But I think that even this idea that you know you have all of these terribly influential oligarchs who kind of control policy or big state companies that could go and kind of have a word and 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 really influence the way he's thinking. I think I think that's it's a it's a misperception that exists perhaps in DC that you know that you know that if you put influence on the companies around, they're going to go and you know and go and tell the big guy what to do. I don't think that's how it works with them either, frankly. And the sanctions that specifically target these big companies, I mean, Deripaska has found himself in the firing line. And the idea is to punish those around Putin, the oligarchs, you know, that his oligarchs. But I mean, that would all argue that that's pointless in so much as they don't have any influence over him. I mean, you're going to hit people who you associate with the, with the Kremlin as an oligarch, but actually they're just rich because they work well with government, they've got them going, but their business is their business. Is, is that not a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think they don't know. First of all, this kind of notion of who is close to the Kremlin has become one of these very confusing notions that's developed. Basically, if you look at the businessmen or companies that have been labeled as Kremlin linked or close to the close to the Kremlin, I mean, it's basically it's everybody who's ever been in the country uh, at some point. So I think that there's not a very clear idea of you know who, who really is the person who could go and have a quiet word, but I'm not sure there are very many of them. Mm. Um, let's move on to the last topic with China. Um, this is an interesting development. I was looking at the timeline of this, and, and I actually think that the Kremlin thought this through very carefully, in so much as the the, the whole effort with uh, the NATO demands were launched in first week of December, and then the demands came out in the middle of December, and then that led through to the start of the talks at the start of, middle of, the start of January, and then we had to wait for the U.S. letter of reply until the middle of January, and now there's an, and then now the Kremlin is considering its response to that letter, um, which takes us into the beginning of February and the start of the Beijing Olympics. And then the very obvious card for Putin to play here is to go and stand shoulder to shoulder with Xi, who with Putin is 
uh, interested in a multipolar world. And the Kremlin, uh, the foreign ministry, and, the, and the, um, the Chinese foreign ministry have significantly or noticeably been more and more coordinating their their messages. And then there's all the joint military exercises. And so the timing of all of this then allows Putin to give his response, but then a show of strength with China. Um, and the whole China takes thing has just sort of launched in the last couple of days. Exactly what that will look like uh, is not clear. But I just saw a flash come across the wires today saying that the Kremlin said that they stand by China on its Taiwan uh, policy, that it will never, ever, ever accept an independent Taiwan, you know, the, the one China policy. So we're expecting more of this. Although key to this relationship, um, they've never said the word, we're allies. And so some people are arguing that it's a marriage of convenience and that the interests are aligned. But I don't know. I mean, what do you expect to come out? Well, what do you, what do you expect to come out of this? To, to what extent is China? Because they're next, aren't they? I mean, you know, the, the Russians have to show down with the states, whatever comes out of it. The Biden's made it perfectly clear that China is next on his agenda. And so obvious thing for them to do is to rally around the flag and join forces. Yeah, I think what's interesting, though, is that China has every reason to be very happy with the situation and very supportive of Russia, right up to the point where if there was actually some major invasion. Because you must think up to that point, yes, this, this is a huge distraction and quite possibly a drain on the United States. I hate that word bandwidth, but nonetheless, there we go. You know, it uses up a lot of US bandwidth, which precisely would otherwise be being directed towards China. It asserts this notion of a multipolar world, as you said, which again, multipolar, not bipolar. Um, and more generally, I mean, what it does is it allows China also to ensure that, that Moscow needs it, which, you know, we know economically, but in fact, politically, it's a lot more complex um, now. So you know, this, is, this is a case where actually it is clearly, it is Putin who is going to Xi looking for support. And the Chinese are perfectly willing to provide it. But again, I think it is, it is quite significant, really, the, the, the way that, that that is kind of formulated in some ways. They waited really until Putin had come to go to see Xi to really sort of roll out the full diplomatic support. So mm. this is his, his reward for, for realising that he has to come over. The mountain had to come to Mohammed. Um, so, you know, this is all absolutely advantageous. And especially because, yes, they, they have got, a, as you said, a reaffirmation of, of Russia's position over Taiwan, which was never really in any doubt. But again, it's one of these kind of touchstone issues. And they're not going to call it an alliance because, firstly, of course, look, all relationships between countries are marriages of convenience at best. But in any case, you might say it is this, this Western fixation with that particular word. It means that it's a lot more powerful to have the West constantly sort of saying, oh, is this an alliance? Might this become an alliance? Are we going to push Russia and China into an alliance? Once you've actually declared it, then in a way you've lost that particular leverage point. But the last point is exactly that the once, if war does start, you know, an escalation, some nasty, vicious war in, in Ukraine, well, first of all, that is going to galvanize America militarily. Um, and, you know, in due course, the knock-on impact, because precisely henceforth, Taiwan will in some ways be seen as the Ukraine, that we need to make sure we stop any kind of pressure before anything, anything else. Secondly, Chinese businesses might well get caught in secondary sanctions. Um, and thirdly, I mean, actually, it will also disrupt 
China's wider, I mean, again, Belt and Road is currently in a sort of slightly uh, transitional moment. But, you know, but nonetheless, you know, China has all kinds of wider aspirations, especially around the Black Sea area. And actually conflict and a, and a sharpening of divisions and, so, and a securitization of international relations in that area might well have a negative impact. So I think, yes, to me, not only is this obvious, you know, a bit of a no-brainer for both Moscow and Beijing to play, but interestingly, it also speaks to, and maybe this is just because that's the outcome I want to hear, but it also speaks to the unlikelihood of, of um, a major military escalation. You know, something like a recognition of, of, of the pseudo-states and then the introduction of Russian peacekeepers, maybe, but anything more, more dramatic, I think that becomes less likely because I frankly, again, I think the Chinese would not be particularly happy with it. One of the scenarios I've been thinking about is <clears throat> Putin's really dug his heels in over this no-NATO thing. And <clears throat> the implication is he's prepared to go all the way in so much as if he doesn't get any guarantee that he accepts on that particular issue, then he's going to assume <clears throat> that NATO is his enemy. I mean, and it's one of the articles, is that, you know, that shall not see us as an enemy. And so the assumption becomes that it is, and then we're back into a Cold War scenario, and then he starts moving missiles around, and um, possibly, you know, annexes a bit of eastern Ukraine, or he floods the Donbass, uh, starts putting sort of serious... Uh, military equipment into there, puts more missiles, scanners or whatever into Crimea, and the whole thing goes pear-shaped. Um, then the the West will respond and then maybe, you know, start putting missiles into uh, Ukraine through this new Polish-British uh, deal that they said, oh, that's not NATO, but we're going to defend our buddies. Um, but then we get into a Cold War scenario. Um, and then as I say, China must be looking at that. I mean, the little I know about China, having talked to Chris Reefer, who, who spends a lot of time there, um, is that they're very unhappy and that they feel themselves also both economically and militarily strong enough to push back. I mean, to, to what extent do you think it's possible that we end up in a sort of new Cold War scenario where they're, you know, ideologically we're on the same page, but you know, militarily and politically the, there's a risk now between the East and West, between Asia and uh, Eurasia and Western Europe, North Atlantic. Is, is that possible? Well, to be perfectly honest, I thought we were pretty much there already. <laughs> I mean, but the point is, it's, it's a new Cold War. It's one in which actually, on the one hand, politically, we are pretty much at daggers drawn. But at the same time, we are now in an essentially interconnected world in which we operate within the same economic space to a large degree, within the same information space to, to a large degree. Um, you know, it's not an ideological conflict, clearly, I mean, because there isn't really an ideology to Putinism except a general sort of, you know, Russia is a great power and needs to be treated as such and not, and not be threatened. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think, I think that there is a certain kind of dynamic there. And frankly, whatever happens, I mean, even if conflict is avoided, which, you know, it probably will be, in my opinion, that's not going to be a sudden kumbaya moment. We're not going to suddenly become friends. It's not as if suddenly all, you know, the visas will be flowing and, and everything else. No, I mean, you know, it will just simply be we have resolved this particular dangerous crisis. And hopefully we have we will have done something to, to neutralize it. I mean, there are things that can be done about Ukraine. Sure. Yeah. The West cannot go back on its rather foolish, just some, some pledge to say Ukraine and Georgia will become part of NATO. Mm -hmm. 
So they can't go Let back me, to that. But on the other hand, look, this is not going to happen for a long time. So you know, there's, there's ways around that. Let, let me flip the question around. I mean, with this whole thing, Putin has um, said very clearly, you know, I want to talk. I'm willing to compromise. Uh, they've already said that they will put limits on themselves or like where the troop members on the border can go on the exercises, which would all improve his security. And I think actually what they're suggesting might even prevent these military buildups, you know, facing Ukraine. Um, surely this is a golden opportunity and surely the NATO construct is a Cold War construct and that, you know, it could be time to move beyond that and do a new pan-regional uh, security deal because the trouble with the setup now is that, and I think this is one of Putin's biggest beefs, is that the, the whole security arrangements in Europe uh, have excluded Russia specifically. And that is going to destabilize it because it, it leaves Russia as it does to see the West as an enemy. And that the opportunity here is to do an inclusive deal whereby you get Russia to agree not to put weapons on the border with Ukraine, where you get it to withdraw from Donbass, from Moldova, from Transnipa. You can do all the whole shopping list and sort out all of these and set up you know, whatever bodies you want to, to monitor it, and you can get Russia to lock in the same guarantees it's asking for from the West. Isn't this a golden opportunity to actually sort all this stuff out once and for all? I mean, I can only admire your optimism. Um, <laughs> that, 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 that will be lovely, except that, A, there are NATO countries who are absolutely convinced that they do face a threat from Russia and that therefore mm. they need an anti-Russian alliance. You know, it, it, it's one thing maybe in Berlin, but, you know, in Warsaw, in the Baltic mm. capitals, you get a very, very different kind of response. And not only that, so but obviously... It's, un, sort of it's unworkable. It's basically unworkable. I mean... I mean, I think the thing I, is, look, I think the idea of some grand renegotiation of Russia's security architecture, I think, Frank, uh, Europe's security architecture, including Russia, um, that, that will have to come someday. I honestly think, though, it's going to be in the post-Putin political era. Because also, I mean, Putin himself is, whatever he may say, I mean, you know, he, he is still, I think, locked in a, in a very confrontational, in some ways, rather paranoid view of, of the West and, and the world. I think it'd be very hard for him to give up certain levers and assume that any kind of treaty could, could solve it. So it's more, I think, at the moment about addressing the particular areas of irritation, which obviously Ukraine is the primary one at the moment, and of not burning bridges so that in the future something, something more, more grand and successful can, can be arranged. But as I say, I think I, I honestly cannot see the scope for that at the moment. So how do we get out of this? Um, that, that actually, I mean, the little I've seen of the letter that the U.S. said was actually quite, um, how should I say, diplomatic. I mean, they they, uh, they left some lots of wiggle room, uh, and they made it kind of clear that the NATO thing, the NATO is, is not going to happen. But the Kremlin has made it equally clear that that's the key. They're not going to talk about anything else uh, unless they get some sort of deal on that. So. Are these, is this whole thing going to fail? Is this whole push by the Kremlin going to fail? And then what happens? I mean, does, does Putin escalate or does he take his minor wins on the talks on the other stuff like you know, arms control and, and take that away and he's happy with that? Because I don't believe that he's going to do that. Yeah, I mean, I mean one, of the, one of the virtues of the continued process of, of dialogue is it gives us a chance to really drill down and get a sense of what Putin's appetite for risk is and what he might be willing to accept as a, you know, a lesser objective compared with his sort of two, two grand ones. 
I don't think that what's on the table is enough yet. But on the other hand, it clearly demonstrates to the Russians that there is room for talking. And that, that's a good thing. We need to sort of keep this process going. I think there are things. I mean, for example, he is precisely concerned about the, you know, the, the potential presence of, of foreign forces in Ukraine. That wouldn't be impossible to, to, to provide him with, with some kind of you know, treaty guarantees, saying that, you know, although we, we make no promises about Ukraine's long-term potential relationship and, and joining NATO, but certainly, you know, but for the next 20 years, except in time of war, we would not be placing any Western military forces beyond small training missions or whatever in Ukraine. So in some ways, that's, that's not Finlandizing Ukraine. That's not basically demanding that Ukraine become neutral, but it is addressing what he at least is saying is his particular mm. concern about the Ukrainian security issue. So, I mean, I think there are these kind of options. The, the, the problem is that they require two things which we too rarely see. One is just simply imagination in terms of actually um, you know, de dealing with this crisis. And secondly, it is a willingness to accept that, firstly, Russia has some genuine security concerns. And secondly, that even where it doesn't necessarily have genuine ones, it has ones that it genuinely believes, or when I say Russia, Putin and, and, and his circle. And yes, I think, the, I mean, obviously the American letters were clearly written with the expectation that they will be leaked which helps explain for some reason why there are that particularly sort of welcoming and, 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 and diplomatic. Mm -hmm. Though even so, I, I felt that it was much more diplomatic than the NATO one. But still, again, yeah. I, think, I think there's room. I mean, we're not there yet, but we shouldn't expect it. I mean, this is not something that's going to be resolved overnight. It's something that just the Russians have to continue to believe that there is point in talking. Well, one of the academics was pointing out that they were saying this crisis looks a bit like the Berlin crisis. Um, um, where there was a showdown and possible talk of war between East and West over the status of Berlin um, at the beginning of the Cold War. And the solution to that crisis was the Berlin Wall, which was an ugly solution. But it kind of worked for the next several decades. And I think increasingly that's one of the outcomes of this showdown, that we'll end up with some sort of ugly, deeply unsatisfying a pragmatic solution where everyone remains prickly on either side, but avoid actually going to war with it. But, um, we've been talking for 45 minutes. Um, I want to do more interactive um, with, these, with these talks because I'm sure people have questions. Tom, you, you said you had a question or a questionnaire? Yeah, I, I, can, I can see there's a question from Roger uh, to everyone, which is why wouldn't Putin strike a deal soon? Biden wants to say he prevented war. And when hawkish Republicans likely take office, they'll start sanctioning more. I mean, I, I, I actually think that there is a lot to that. And, and, and so, you know, when you try and analyze, you know, is there a potential sort of deal to be done? You know, I guess you have to sort of think what, do, you know, what do people want? What are, what, are, what are the various end games here? And I think if I look at it from the Russian perspective, you know, as, as we were saying earlier, I genuinely believe that Russia does not want a major war. I think it's, I think they view way more downside than anything possibly to gain. So the flip side of that is then why are you doing all of this? Presumably because they want something else. And so they, they want some kind of, you know, some sort of concession. And I think if you look at it from the US side, again, I think it's, you know, Biden has made it very clear, A, Russia's not the priority, the China's the priority, and B, I think the mood in the US now is very anti-more international wars, right? I don't think anyone's going to score any points by getting into a war that there is not support for in the US, and there certainly wouldn't be for a war in Ukraine. So I think if you put all of those two, those two sort of factors together, it's, 
seems like there must be a deal to be done therefore so that mm. again i th- and i and i think that when, when i try and make sense of the of the coverage and these kind of constant intelligence leaks and briefings of you know war is imminent what can what can be something that they can take away from that what can be a possible upside is because then they can stop a war from happening because if the war wasn't going to happen anyway then you can't stop it and you and then all you your only choice is to get further into it so maybe it sounds cynical but i you know i it seems to me that biden could have a big win here he 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 stood he stood putin down he talked the russians down and he stopped an inevitable war from happening i think he wins and maybe in return putin gets something i don't think he's going to get much but you know he doesn't have anything at the moment so if he walks away with anything as Mark was saying, that can certainly be spun as a victory here. So I think, you know, potentially everyone wins. Maybe I it's agree. overly optimistic, but it seems logical, if nothing else. Uh, I agree. I mean, the fact that we've actually had a discussion now start between East and West on security is for Putin a big win. Um, because really, his only tool up until now has been to move troops around, which is what he's done on several occasions. Um, and the He's got the West to admit that he has genuine, some genuine security uh, concerns. And actually, Biden, the, the, the irony of this situation is this is the perfect time to have this conversation with Merkel having left um, office. The, you know, Europe is a bit divided. There's too many fractions in there. It's, it's like herding cats. And then Biden coming in, who is incredibly dovish, I mean, particularly for an American politician. And for Putin, the whole thing... He started with the ABM Treaty withdrawal in 2003, and, and as a senator, Biden actually argued against that quite vehemently. And there's been this policy since then of closing down all these Cold War um, agreements. And with Biden, the first thing he did in the first week of office is he, he, he signed or renewed the, the START three treaty. So um, I think he's, he's probably the best person, and the political alignment in Europe is such um, that this is the best opportunity to have this conversation. Uh, and the fact that it's begun is a good thing. Um, it's just, I don't see where it's going to go from here. I, I think the next few weeks, months will be very interesting. And if, if Mark is, is right, then we end up with, you know, an unsatisfactory result that war is avoided. And as you say, Tom, that, uh, that Biden gets away with a victory in so much as he prevented this invasion that he's hyped so much, then he looks good. Cause I think it's another aspect of this story that's really not taken into account is the importance of domestic politics in all of this. But um, we have another question from James Bruce, um, and maybe this is for you, Mark. Um, To what extent was this whole thing uh, predicated or caused by these petrified front lines uh, with the Crimea that pushed us back into this new Cold War? I mean, again, talking to my German diplomatic friends, the Crimea, the annexation, was just a shock. I mean, they were absolutely shocked. They thought, yeah, Russia's a bit difficult, it's prickly, it's corrupt, um, it's authoritarian tendencies. But to grab the Crimea, they were just like, that's a game changer. Um, and really, the West does not trust Russia in any way, shape, or form since then. I mean, isn't that, isn't that decision by Putin? Didn't he sort of shoot himself in the foot by doing that? Well, I mean, again, this is about, this is about perceptions. At the same time, Euromaidan, and as far as Putin is concerned, essentially the the toppling of the democratically elected government by what he seems genuinely to have believed was is a foreign, primarily U.S. backed, instigated or choreographed uh, rising in Ukraine. 
this, you know, absolutely sort of crucial strategic uh, sort of location and also part of the sort of Slavic common wheel. I mean, again, I think it's, you know, we we might place it in Crimea, but Putin, I think, would place the origins of Crimea in Euromaidan. So, yes, I mean, anyway, this, this, this is the culmination of a process which really have been sort of moving from the day that Putin entered office, in a way, I think, was a sort of a mix of misunderstandings and misassumptions about the other side. And yeah, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, Crimea clearly did represent a, a sort of dramatic shift point. From the Russians, it was that point when we just made it clear that we weren't willing to accept this any longer, mm. that we were actually willing to become, you know, to, to, to push back against the, the unipolar moment. And for us, it became exactly that moment where Jesus actually, you know, this Putin really doesn't understand the rules of the game and the etiquette of international relations, and we, we, we can't deal with him. And in some ways, I mean, this is it. This, sort of, this is why it, it, it is, in effect, a Cold War, in that certainly in, in Putin's circle, and I suspect in many, though not all, Western capitals, there is a sense that the two blocs, you know, Russia and the West, are at war, but not a shooting war, but this mm. more sort of generalized political, cultural, economic um, sort of conflict. I, ha I had a question here from David Horgan, which actually I think brings up a very interesting point. You've been talking about Cold War, political war, um, and he's asking when will Nord Stream 2 um, gas start flowing? And this, Tom, lands in your court in so much as, as, as you both know, I, I have this analogy, planet business, planet politics and a lot of this nato stuff this is all planet politics but then in your world tom planet business there's no war there's no acrimony between them at all the partners you know they're actively tapping international capital they're looking to expand globally um and they haven't got a problem with the west at all and moreover and this is what complicates the situation because you talk to the germans they're like Nord stream two is an economic problem uh, project, rather. You know, we, we have no problem with Russia. We want Nord Stream to gas. And there's this dichotomy here, because unlike the previous Cold War, which was an ideological class, this one, we're both capitalists. And so as far as planet business is concerned, we have no beef with the West whatsoever. In fact, we're partners. We, uh, we're we making lots of money, and for them, too. Isn't that the case, Tom? I mean, isn't this the, 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 um, the, uh, the irony of this situation, no? Well, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But if you look specific to, specifically to the question asked there, when will the gas uh, start flowing through Nord Stream 2? And I, I, guess, I guess the answer, first, so coming back to your analogy, I think this is a project that sort of lives partially in planet business, but partially in planet politics, right? And certainly, you know, whenever you get into energy, it's always going to be a bit of both. And, and, I, and I guess as long as we're still sort of living with this idea that an invasion is imminent, uh, quote unquote, I don't think the gas is going to start flowing very quickly, right? But it's but but presumed but just because I think that if 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 that sort of potential threat of a sanction isn't still kind of on the cards, then you know they 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 they, they no longer have that card to play. It's, it's right. So it's I think that that it starts to flow once we feel that we've sort of dialed things back and we're no longer anticipating a mate and we're and back into it some kind of dialogue or conversation about a resolution rather than, you know, does the war start tomorrow or the day after? And in general, just pick up on that, actually, just, just yeah, for a moment. Go ahead, I mean, and again, I think one of the interesting things is if we are going to be able to dial this down, it will precisely require a degree of choreography on both sides. 
Yeah. It is exactly that something like Nord Stream 2, it can be presented as a, well, I'll tell you what, we will, you know, we, we will let you send your gas through the pipeline. And therefore, what really is a fairly sort of useful from, from Germany and, and other countries sort of um, economic asset also becomes a political token. I mean, my big concern, and this is in part because, I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I have a suspicion that there is something of a conflict going on within the American administration between the sort of the traditional blob, which is much more, I think, hawkish on Russia at the moment and in some ways wants, wants to beat Russia, and then Biden himself and certain others who actually want to resolve this crisis, which is a rather different thing. You know, mm. if, if we want to resolve it, then what quite possibly limited gains we will give the Russians, most of which they probably would have, you know, would in effect have anyway, we are going to have to be willing to wrap it in nice shiny paper and put a great big bow on it. And in a way, not actively undermine the narrative that Putin will present, which is, you see, this is what I've got out of the West. Yeah. We have to, in a way, give Putin off ramps. Otherwise, we're facing, you know, we're offering him this choice of capitulation or escalation. And I think we know which one he, he would do in that case. And likewise, you know, this also is, is something that can then be packaged by the Biden administration exactly as a, we have brought peace to what otherwise was going to be a land of, of imminent war. So I think the interesting thing is that if we are going to get some resolution at some point, both sides are going to have to, in some ways, coordinate their narratives. And things like Nord Stream mm. 2, I think, will be quite crucial there. Absolutely. And, and while, while I think about, when I think about it from a sort of logic standpoint of what people really want, I, I feel optimistic that there is a deal to be done. But when I think about it, to, to Mark's point of, you know, this is going to require this sort of the leaders of the US, UK, Russia to be incredibly skilled, incredibly nuanced, incredibly smart about how they sort of package this and present this. And then I look at the leaders, I look at Boris Johnson and others. Are these the guys who are going to be capable of doing this incredibly sort of strategic, nuanced, subtle communication? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure about that, actually. Indeed. It depends how many um, parties he has. <laughs> guys um we, we've been talking for an hour um i think that's the sort of upper limit i don't want to drag this on uh beyond that but i want to take uh, the opportunity to thank both you uh tom and mark very much for participating um it's been a fascinating discussion and it's still very much up in the air um i hope sincerely that no it doesn't come to blows um happily i i doubt it will do but i think it could but as Mark said, I think there's serious repercussions going forward from this, um, depending on how how um, unanimously the deal, whatever it is that gets done at the end, is um, is sold and, and accepted by both sides. And, and we could be looking to a protracted period of um, tensions between the two sides, which I sincerely hope doesn't happen. Uh, it seems our Twitter spaces has crashed um, just before the end, but there is a recording of that. And I'd like to thank all the listeners for listening in. Um, to remind you that actually we're going to do something similar next week um, when we're going to talk to Jock Mendoza from Kiev and try and get a take on what it's like on the ground. Again, looking a little bit at, at uh, Ukrainian business, um, he represents Renat Akhmedov uh, from System Capital Management, which should also be a very interesting discussion. So until then, I thank everyone once again, and um, great pleasure having you both. Thank you, Ben. Thank you all. Thank you, Mark. Okay. Ciao.